0: Acts chapter 17, I'm going to read from verses uh, 10 to 21, and then we're going to jump down to verses 32 and 34, but I'll start at verse 10 of Acts chapter 17. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up crowds. Uh, As an aside, the same ones who just previously had stirred up the crowds in Thessalonica. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Uh, down to verse 32, Paul preaches his, uh, his sermon here in the Areopagus. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Well, let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you for your precious and holy word, which is the truth, as we exist and live in a time where... Um, much like the Athenians, people just seem to want to hear something new. As we bring the gospel to bear and the demands of Jesus Christ on a world, we don't just bring something new. We bring the truth once for all delivered to the saints. The truth by which if any man or woman or child believes, he will that moment From the Savior, a pardon receive. I pray that you would assist us, Lord, as we spend time in your word, by your spirit, and move away the obstacles and the impediments to our hearing and receiving the good news of Jesus Christ. What a horrendous thing to be confronted with the unsearchable riches of Christ and to despise them, to see them as a stone to trip over rather than a stone to build on. So would you assist us, Lord, that we may able we may be able to say this morning, stand in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. May we not maintain a speculative or a curious interest in the truth, but a life-or-death interest in the truth? Assist us, we pray in your name. Amen. in uh, in Matthew 18, most of you know this parable. Jesus tells his disciples a story about a farmer sowing seeds. And some seeds fall on the path where they're immediately eaten by the birds, it says. Others get choked by weeds as they grow up. Other seeds fall on good soil and grow and produce a harvest. And Jesus goes on to say that What's being illustrated in that parable are different responses people have to the preaching of the gospel. Where the word of God is preached, it goes out indiscriminately and ought to do so. Just like someone sowing seeds. Before farm machines, that's how you would sow a field. You didn't know where every seed was falling specifically You just tried to sow as evenly and widely as you could. You had to trust for all the seeds that wouldn't germinate, some would. And there would be a harvest at the end of it. And when we share the gospel with our friends and coworkers and neighbors, we don't know the effect it's going to have. And that's exactly how it should be. Preaching is heralding. It's a call to anyone who will listen to come to Christ and be saved. Some people will hear the word preached. Jesus says in the parable, and the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. It has no effect. They hear the word, and it's just one more piece of information they can discard. It doesn't seem like anything valuable or unique or powerful, and it's just gone before anything can take root. But others will hear it, we're told, and receive it and believe it. The gospel seed will take root and go on to bear lasting fruit. And we see this pattern play out time and time again in acts when the apostles preach Christ some hear and eagerly receive it as we'll see in the case of the Bereans here others will hear it and reject it outright and even try to stone the apostles as we see in chapter 14 but still others as we'll see in the case of the Athenians will entertain the idea of the gospel, but fail to actually receive and believe the gospel. In this case, in the case of the Athenians, their rejection is disguised under this veneer of respectability and pseudo-intellectualism. Their consciences have been so seared by pluralism and polytheism and relativism, they don't even recognize the truth anymore. And my sermon today is on the difference between a saving interest or a saving faith in Christ and a speculative interest or an entertaining or a curiosity in Christ. And we're hopefully going to see these differences illustrated in the contrasting responses of the Athenians versus the Bereans. Now these... Phrases, a saving interest, a speculative interest, aren't ones we hear much anymore. They're almost kind of quaint. But they're important and relevant distinctions to make. Speculation is in high fashion today. Conviction, commitment are outdated. What's important today, people think, is that you remain a neutral third party to any truth claiming to be the truth, to any authority claiming to be the authority. Sure, you can believe in Jesus, whatever that means, but don't let it go any farther than that. Don't stake your life on him, and definitely don't make demands on others because of him. That's what you call a speculative Interest, and it's not the interest of saving faith. A saving interest or a saving faith doesn't have the luxury of speculation. It knows it's in danger. It doesn't have any other choice but to rest its full weight on a salvation, on a righteousness, on a truth outside of itself. It's the difference between acknowledging, in theory, the seaworthiness of a boat and jumping on that boat to escape a flood. A saving interest in Christ isn't the kind of interest that just sees him as one option among many. Rather, it follows the advice of the old hymn, Venture on him, venture holy; let no other trust intrude. How do you know if you have a saving interest rather than a speculative interest? Well, let's look at the Bereans versus the Athenians. First of all, notice the Bereans receive the word, it says, with eagerness, whereas the Athenians receive the word with contempt. So just before they arrive here in Berea, Paul and Silas had been preaching in Thessalonica, both to Jews and to Gentiles. And as always, there is a mixed reception. Some people believe, and as we read on in the New Testament, we find the book of the Thessalonians, the church was planted there. But many more were worried about their own loss or the reputation. And eventually found a mob, we're told, to drive the apostles out of the city. So they head off to Berea, which is about 80 kilometers southeast, southwest of Thessalonica. And in verse 11, we see that Paul proclaims the word of God to the Bereans. And I imagine the Bereans' response here would have come as a breath of fresh air for Paul. Because it says that the Bereans received the word with all Eagerness. In other words, the Berean hearts were like soil that's been fertilized and softened by the rain and had all of the rocks taken out of it. The message between Thessalonica and Berea hadn't changed. Rather, God had done some serious preparation so that when the gospel seed falls, it immediately takes root. And there's an interesting phrase used here of the Jews in Berea, and it's that these were more noble-minded than the ones in Thessalonica. And this word literally means that the Berean Jews were more open-minded than the Thessalonian Jews. Now, this isn't the kind of open-mindedness we see in the Athenians a mind that's so open that it never closes on anything. Rather, it was open in the way that our mouths open for good food. The Jews in Thessalonica were so blinded by jealousy that they would rather starve than entertain even the possibility that the Jesus that Paul was proclaiming was the Christ. And this is the first way a saving interest in Christ differs from a speculative interest. It gladly and eagerly receives his word as dry desert ground receives rain. James tells his readers in chapter 121 to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What does that mean? Well, when you adopt a posture of meekness towards the Word, it means the Word has functional authority in your life. It means that our impulse, our response, when faced with difficult truths in Scripture, isn't to politely decline or make excuses as to why that truth doesn't apply to you. But to assume the least of ourselves to remember that we are so easily deceived and turned off the path and assume the best of the word and believe the best of the word. That's the essence of meekness. And the Bereans' noble-mindedness was evidence in their resolve to meekly receive the word. And we'll see in verse 12 the salvation that followed from that response. And we need to remember here that Jesus isn't interested in being entertained. Given a guest room, offered some polite, civil conversation. This is why his earthly ministry happens less among the house of the Pharisees than it does in the houses of need and misery. And see, this is where the Athenians go so wrong. The Athenians' whole existence was devoted to friendly dealings with religion. Take a bit from here. Take a bit from there. The idea of receiving meekly any truth claiming to be the only truth would have been anathema to them and was. So when Paul begins to proclaim Jesus and the resurrection, verse 18, what is their response? What does this babbler have to say? You've probably seen those flocks of birds that just land on your lawn for no apparent reason. There's like four dozen of them. And they, who knows why they're there. They don't seem to have any direction or purpose. They just wander around picking up random things on the ground. That's literally what a babbler means. It's someone who picks up bits of knowledge and gossip like a bird picks up seeds and sticks. Rather than receive the word meekly and gratefully and desperately, as the Bereans did, they saw themselves above it. And after Paul's sermon a little further on, as she read in verse 32, we're told that some mocked. We're the intellectual highbrows here. We've heard every religion this side of the Mediterranean. And trust us, Paul, you've got nothing we need. They miss, they missed. And so many today miss that need is the key. Need doesn't have the luxury of thinking it can entertain anyone. It's so aware of its poverty that food and drink magazine kind of hospitality is just the farthest thing from its mind. The ones who meekly receive the word and Jesus are under no deception that they have anything to offer. They're meek, not because they've been brought up well, but because they have a sober-minded awareness of their condition. What does a beggar say to the king who wants to have dinner at his house? Does he look through his cupboards, you know, find some crusts and bones to set out and say, you know, I should, be, I should be good enough for the king? No. When the king asks him, he responds with, well, I hope you're bringing the food because I don't have anything. Rutherford says, poor folks must either borrow or beg the rich. And the only thing that commends sinners to Christ is extreme necessity and want. Christ's love is ready to make and provide a ransom and money for those who have lost their wallets. You who have no money, come and buy. That is the poor man's market. This is saving interest. It's the kind of interest that grace can smell a mile off and will visit before it visits the hearts of a thousand people professing religion. It's a vested, determined, life or death kind of interest. It's thief on the cross kind of interest. And this right here is the hardest thing in the world for a human heart. It's not intellectual barriers. It's not busyness. It's pride. It's a refusal to admit that we are in desperate need of a Savior like Christ Jesus. And unless God first does this groundbreaking work in our heart to break up its proud soil so that we see our need, we will forever keep pretending, like the Athenians, that our situation isn't as bad as it seems. We hide, like Adam and Eve, try to hide from our shame, deny it, excuse it, rebrand it. Is that your interest in Christ this morning? Are you a needy guest at his banqueting table? Or are you living in self-deception? That you are enough, that heaven is lucky to have someone as qualified and intelligent as you are. Jesus doesn't need us, but he is willing and eager for us to need him. Secondly, notice that the Bereans are determined and eager to verify truth, whereas the Athenians are totally careless of truth. The Bereans were told in verse 11, urgently search the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying about Jesus was true. Now, what was he saying? Well, he was likely saying the same things that he said to the Jews in Thessalonica, back in verse three of this chapter, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus Whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. That's what Paul's saying. Here was a weird little broken man who wasn't coming with some more laws from Jerusalem or some new thing from Athens. Here was a man who was claiming that the long-awaited Messiah had arrived, that he had healed the sick, and cast out demons, and preached the kingdom for three years through Galilee and Judea, that he had been crucified, that he had risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, just like all the prophecies said that he would. And that now, now there was no more need of temples, or sacrificial systems, or high priests, or religious castes. If you were a Jew, this would have been, hands down, the most horrifying or the most amazing thing you were ever going to hear. What Paul was saying. And the Berean response to this news is anything but haphazard. Whether or not Jesus was the Christ of Scripture would literally change everything about who they were and how they lived and how they worshipped. Everything. Everything. And understandably, they don't just want to stake this upheaval on their lives, on the opinion of just some random Jew who says he's an apostle. So they start searching the scriptures every day. Verse 11. What are they doing? They're assessing what Paul is saying against the straight measuring line of God's word. And no matter how intelligent and open-minded someone says they are, everyone comes to truth claims with some kind of rule. Some kind of standard by which they're testing truth. The Athenians do this with Jesus. That's why they scoff at his resurrection. It doesn't meet their standards for who a God should be. The question is, always... How good is your rule? Is it straight? Is it reliable? Is it tested? The Bereans had a good measuring tool. Because we read that they had the scriptures. And they found that what Paul was saying wasn't some new thing, but actually confirming a very old thing. And that what he was saying about Jesus lined up exactly with the rule of the scriptures. All that to say that a saving interest or a saving faith bows to what's true. Not just what's new or exciting or convenient. Not just to what will win applause or commendation. A saving interest in Christ is like the pearl merchant. When it finds the real thing, nothing is too important to sell or give away to get it. It has a Berean-like thirst and hunger for the truth, and nothing less will do. What about the Athenians? Well, we see the Athenians' rule for truth laid out for us in verse 21, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So if you wanted to be accepted by the Athenians, what you had to do was bring them something new or interesting, something unique, something innovative, something they never heard before. Because the Jews, they wanted remember miracles, acts of power. The Greeks had an appetite for knowledge. didn't matter if it was true or false knowledge, just so long as it was some knowledge. And it had to be the right kind of knowledge, the kind of knowledge that the human heart can value and appreciate. And when Paul preaches in Christ in verse 32, what happens? When they heard of the resurrection of the dead... That is, when Paul mentions that Jesus rose from the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So you've got outright scorn. We've also got polite dismissal. They say, all this is, you know, it's interesting, Paul. If you're free again in the future, we'd love to hear you talk about that thing again. This completely detached curiosity, which is fundamentally a deadness to truth. What happens when you put something hot against dead skin? doesn't feel anything. The nerves are dead. That's the Athenian response to truth. And that is always the speculative response to truth. It's interesting to note here that when the Athenians respond like this, what does Paul do? Well, he doesn't hang around, does he? He doesn't book a time two weeks from then to come back and teach again. He just leaves. Why is that? Because Paul isn't interested in entertaining people. To me, this grace was given, Paul says, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Where the Gentiles don't recognize the riches, Paul has better things to do. And he tells Timothy later on in one of his letters, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That sums up the Athenians in a nutshell. They're not actually interested in truth. All they want are teachers who can satisfy that itch for something new and improved. Something that's interesting, but that won't make any demands of them. And just... Reinforce what they already want to do. And myths are great for that. Myths don't ever confront, they're like Plato. You can make them do whatever you want. Look at the myths we're surrounded with today boys can be girls, girls can be boys, men can marry men, women can marry women. And we need to call these doctrines out for the evil that they are. They're not fashionable. They're not progressive. They're enslaving lies that will prevent people from tasting and seeing the goodness and beauty of the freedom in Christ. Doug Wilson calls it same-sex mirage, and that's exactly what it is. It's a mirage. It's nothing. And the goodness... Rightness and normalcy we've created to justify them are all myths as well. And if we took the time to verify our opinions with general revelation, like the Bereans verified with special revelation, we'd see that nature itself teaches these are lies. But we don't want to hear what nature teaches, we don't want to hear what God says. For all our righteous posturing and all our supposed open-mindedness, we don't want to hear the truth. Why? Because the truth is inflexible. We want narratives that justify our lusts and passions. And there's no escaping that the Bible is an imperative book. The gospel of Jesus Christ is one big imperative. It doesn't let you have a category of indifference. It makes demands that you can accept or reject, but you can't be indifferent towards. Whoever believes in him, John says, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Condemned, not condemned. Right? Wrong, black, white, darkness, light, one way, many ways, antithesis, right? If this is true, that can't be true. The world hates antithesis because we want to sin with impunity. We want to do what we want, and we don't want our shame to be uncovered. So what do you do? You do what the Athenians do. You hide in the bushes of relativism. That was the Athenian fire escape plan from the truth and demands of Jesus Christ. And where Christ is received with a a curiosity, what's the response? Where he's not welcomed with the eagerness of the Bereans, what does Jesus tell his disciples to do? When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom and for that town. This is the crux of all this. When Paul brought Jesus to the Athenians, he wasn't just bringing another knick-knack they could put on their shelf of religious souvenirs. He was saying the same thing I'm saying to you now. And that's that faith in Christ is a life or death matter. Don't miss the significance of Paul leaving Athens so soon after he preached to them. Apart from God, we're all like the Athenians. Or like Felix, when Paul was trying to witness to him. Remember? Go away, Paul. If what you're saying is true, it's scary and inconvenient. When I'm ready, I'll call you back. Speculative interest. And it's the most dangerous game we can play. You don't know what will happen tomorrow or 10 minutes from now. None of us do. You might just be visiting this morning. Never hear about Jesus again. Walk out that door, forget everything that was said this morning. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like the Athenians did. Receive the word eagerly, meekly, like the Bereans did. Don't settle for a bankrupt, curious interest about Christ. I guarantee it will let you down in the end. Which leads to our final point: Where the Bereans believed the Word, the Athenians only entertained the Word. And this is the most important difference between a saving interest or a saving faith and a speculative interest. Belief is where the rubber hits the road. Again, it's the difference between affirming the seaworthiness of a boat and actually going across it on a deep lake. And sadly, whereas many Bereans believed, we're told in verse 12, Where many Bereans went from a a curious interest to a saving interest, we're told that in verse 34, only some Athenians believed. Their carelessness cost them their life. Now it's possible and common to have informed speculations to the extent that anyone listening to you or talking to you might assume you're actually a Christian. And yet, you still being a stranger to grace. Jonathan Edwards says, No degree of speculative knowledge of religion is any certain sign of true salvation. Whatever notions a man may have of the attributes of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, the nature of the covenants, if he can speak excellently about the offices of Christ and the way of salvation... And the methods of divine wisdom. If he can talk clearly and exactly of the method of the justification of a sinner. And the nature of conversion and the operations of the spirit of God. To the help of the church and the conviction of the ignorant. And the increase of light in the world. If he has more knowledge of this sort than hundreds of true saints of an ordinary education. Yet all is no certain evidence of any degree of saving grace in the heart. And that should make us think and consider seriously. We've got three groups presented for us in this chapter. All three have the appearance of religion. All three are in the proximity of religion. Only one has the true experience of it. The Thessalonican Jews and the Athenians had lots of knowledge, but they never believed. They never received the word eagerly, like a dying man receives medicine. The gospel only finds a home where it is wholly received, fully received, not just where it's entertained. And why are you here this morning? Is it because you like the preaching or the pastor? Is it because you're intellectually stimulated? Is it because you feel comfortable in this demographic of people? Is it because they think like you do? Is it because you're trying to make someone else happy? Or maybe you're just sick of the madness of the world? All of those things are understandable. None of them are saving faith. And the most tragic thing in the world would be for you to go through life, to go through church, in the locale of the kingdom, thinking you were a Christian when you weren't and you aren't. Do you want to know why Jesus was so harsh with those who followed him and why so many people ended up leaving. It's because he was a real shepherd and he is a real shepherd and because he has actual compassion on crowds and not just pseudo compassion. And he didn't care about having a following or building up his ego. He cared about telling people hard truth And I hope and I pray that we can be churches that shepherd like Jesus does. Hill City Baptist, Westmount, Bible Chapel, many other churches across the country. Thank God for you and them. I hope you pray for that for us. I hope we can be the kind of Christians that would sooner have 27 people walk out the doors of our church because someone told them the truth. Rather than those same people stay, sign off on the church documents, join the fellowship groups, live 30, 40 years in the church only to have Jesus tell them on the day of judgment, depart from me, I never knew you. We need to be serious churches That have serious conversations about serious things. We don't need another church that just plays around with programs and little events, sermons that we all agree with. And across the board, I'm not just talking about seeker sensitive churches here, I'm talking about reformed churches as well. God spare us from that nonsense. And I thank God you're not one of these churches. We're so thankful for your partnership. But don't think if we don't stay vigilant and urgent, we can't become that someday. Because we can't. Very easily. Who say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and don't need a thing. And don't realize that they are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked revelations 3 the laodicean church who thought they were doing pretty well we need to warn each other every day because our hearts are always pulling away from the hard things and warnings are hard and the truth is hard and if god doesn't keep us we will pull away every time When we heal the wounds of people lightly so that everyone just leaves feeling good about things, we're acting like hypocrites. We need to resolve not to do that because we're in a war. And we need Pauline tactics, not Athenian tactics, if we're serious about storming the gates of hell. Are we going to have the kind of ministries that just entertain goats or that feed sheep? We need to resolve never to care about numbers or commendation or that people speak well of us. We need to be churches rooted and grounded in truth and real, honest, essential Christianity with an essential Christ at the heart of it. And God, help us to that end. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed that every day when we wake up, we are confronted with grace upon grace and new mercies that are sufficient for the day's trials. Lord, when we look around and we see the myriad of ditches that we could fall into. What can we say, but who is sufficient for these things? Lord, we pray that you would send us your spirit to help us to be wise and sober-minded in these deceitful and dark days that we would not avoid the hard conversations and the hard truths and that we would receive meekly the word, so that when we are confronted and convicted, we don't excuse ourselves, but we come into the light as Adam and Eve came into the light, probably expecting to be blasted and instead receiving a promise because that is the kind of God that you are, a God of of inconceivable grace in the face of our stubbornness and our hard-heartedness. Lord, would you have mercy on us? Lord, if there are any here this morning who are, have just settled perhaps for a, a speculative, a curious interest about Christ, I pray that you would free them from that delusion, that they would trust you with their whole heart, not try to hedge their bets. Those who trust him wholly will find him wholly true. Help us, we pray to this end. We pray in your name. Amen.